Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, in lieu of our traditional interview, you'll hear stories from listeners who called in to tell us how Trump shutdown is affecting them and the people they care about. Uh, and thank you to everyone who called in and shared your stories with us. Um, before that, we're going to talk about the latest shutdown developments, including Pelosi taking away Trump's TV time. Uh, <laughs> we'll also talk about Michael Cohen's decision not to... Good. we'll also talk about michael cohen's decision not to testify before congress and all the latest 2020 news uh also love it or leave it is back show is tonight pod drop saturday uh this week on keep it uh, ira Kara and lewis talk about the oscar nominations and the fire festival documentaries which means it's an outstanding episode have you seen those documentaries yet dan no but i know that you you recommended the hulu one to me have you seen the netflix one I have seen the Netflix one. They're both excellent. I think the Netflix one is perhaps better produced, but I think the Hulu one is more interesting. Anyway, Which but I'd watch both of the them. I'd watch ja a third. Rule. That's what I want to know. Uh, so uh, Netflix actually has the most jaw rule. So that okay, is I'm in. that is <laughs> that is a uh, that is a deciding factor there. But they're fantastic. It's right up your alley. You would love those. So perfect. Okay. Finally, if you live in Charleston, New Orleans, or Durham, you'll have a chance to see us live and in person. In February, when you're when we're on tour, uh, go to crooked.com slash events for tickets. They're going fast, but you can still get some in each of those three cities. We still have a few left, so check it out. Uh, you can also check out the listings for Love It or Leave It shows coming up in Chicago, Madison, and Milwaukee, and Pod Save the People shows coming up in Philly, Brooklyn, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A. Okay, let's start with the news. The state of our union is a clusterfuck, Dan. <laughs> Uh, on Wednesday, the president wrote a letter to the Speaker of the House telling her that despite her earlier objections, he still planned on coming to the Capitol on Tuesday night, to which Nancy Pelosi quickly responded, no, you're not. And so late on Wednesday night, Donald Trump tweeted that he will deliver the State of the Union when the shutdown is over. Dan, what do you think about this outcome? Are you surprised that uh, Trump folded as fast as a Trump casino? <laughs> I mean, you were just on fucking fire. <laughs> I appreciate you passing up the trite but low-hanging fruit state of our disunion. Ugh. You missed an opportunity with failed state of our union. All kinds of options here. But I'll leave that to the cable. Yeah, folks. I am actually surprised that he um, that he let the fight go so quickly. Um, like because as part of my New Year's resolution, I have been steadily reducing my phone time. I put my phone away last night in order to watch some television, watch wow. the Sixers game. Yeah, it was oh, really I, nice. And so I did none of that. Uh, I did not see until later that he had folded, and I was quite surprised to see that. I think there are a couple parts about this. Is I think what happened, you know, sort of the way this happened is. As we talked about a few weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi sent a letter saying, I'm moving the State of the Union because of security concerns. Trump then sent another letter yesterday that said, checked on the security concerns, noted truth teller, uh, Kirsten Nielsen says it'll be fine. I'm coming anyway. I look forward to seeing you. And then Nancy Pelosi was like, nope. 
And Trump called her bluff only to find out like 30 seconds later that she was holding uh, full house. And he and I and so the things that are interesting about it are one, he gave there are two options here, which I think we'll probably talk about. One is he could have prolonged the confrontation or prolonged the fight or done like he like showed up at the at the house or done something or he could have given the speech in an alternative location. And the fact that he chose none of these. So it gives me some measure of hope that he's starting to see all the doors close around him for this confrontation. Yeah, I mean, we all were trying to predict what might happen on our uh, on our Crooked Media Slack channel yesterday. Uh, Brian Boitler thought there was going to be an uh, armed standoff between the Capitol Guards and the Secret Service. <laughs> that, um, that was me. I said that. Oh, you thought that? Oh, Brian, Brian? Brian had Brian had the best suggestion of where the alternative would be. Oh, right. Oh, Brian was saying the arm standoff, too. Both of you thought the arm standoff was going to happen. I have text evidence, but Um, that's fine. Either way, (laughs) great minds think alike. I'm pleased to be part of the same weird uh, (laughs) conspiracy theorist with Brian Brian Buehler. (laughs) I thought that it would be another location. That was my guess. And then Brian said, obviously, he's going to deliver the State of the Union at Covington High School. (laughs) I had this plan that I've been working on for two days, which was I was going to... uh, do an outline that was completely fake and send it to you where like the first half of the pod was just going to be our takes on the Covington Catholic thing. And the second <laughs> thing would be bemoaning the state of journalism for Buzzfeed. Maybe Buzzfeed. you're maybe not getting something wrong, you but then really, that got too tired. I would have really so pushed my buttons. Like five man. minutes and just did a real outline. <laughs> that would have really pushed my buttons. I guess Tommy and, uh, and John answered a question about Covington on the live stream yesterday. So they finally had to get into it, but uh, I'm staying out. <laughs> So yeah, I, I actually thought though he would go to another location, and because you know he there were some reports that maybe he'd go to the southwestern border. There were other reports that maybe he'd do a you know a MAGA rally somewhere. Um, and then I I did read after he gave in to Pelosi, someone said on background that you know some people in the White House thought that maybe giving the speech somewhere else would diminish him and would make him look small. Which it's funny that people in the White House still think about actions that would make trump look small <laughs> like you know that's what a makes thought process small? they still have live yeah, tweeting tucker carlson on a nightly basis <laughs> right. that makes you look small not right. giving a speech from a fucking factory floor people focus yeah. on the big picture <laughs> um so here's a tweet from maggie haberman last night she said uh white house believes pelosi has erred in getting into a tactical fight with trump that involves testing who can kick more dirt dan is there any evidence that nancy pelosi made an error by doing this no, we actually have polling, which says that, no, Nancy Pelosi is beating Trump in this, and people are more approving of the way she's handling it than Trump by pretty large margins. And the whole thing, the whole conversation around this is stupid. And I'm actually kind of gl- I think Nancy Pelosi did the right thing 100%. You, if you want to shut down the government and temper tantrum over your fake wall, then you don't get to d- come to her house and give the State of the Union. Like, right. open up the government, then you get to give your fucking speech. Like, that is the right approach. But the whole discussion around it is a distraction from the most important thing, which is the actual crisis happening in this country. And yeah. so in that sense, I'm glad it's over. But Nancy Pelosi handled this right. Trump mishandled it for a while and then actually did what was probably the the first strategic thing he would done, which was quit a fight you know you're going to lose early. Right. Yeah, it did seem like he, by tweeting that, he, there's at least a glimmer of hope that he wants a path out of this. 
Um, perhaps, who knows? I just think it's hilarious that someone in the White House told Maggie, like, uh, she made a real mistake getting down in the dirt with us. <laughs> just just an admission that the White House, most of their tactics and strategies are just down in the dirt. Like, don't play dirty with us, you know, because then you'll get uh, then you'll get burned. It's just so it's so cynical. It's such a cynical thing to say. I mean, it's important to remember these people are dumb. Yeah, they're they're not. They were dumb when they they were dumb. You know they're dumb because they decided to work for Trump, and then you know they got dumber because being around Trump makes people stupider. It takes people, even people who've been serious in other parts of their lives, and drags them down into a swamp of stupidity. So, like, why we're even quoting these people? Why they get we get to hear their anonymous takes on these things is a great fucking question. Yeah, and look, we also had a slew of polling yesterday. Uh, about the shutdown that was taken over the last couple of days. Uh, Associated Press has Donald Trump's approval rating at 34%, down from 42% last month. So that's a new record. Um, 59% of people disapprove of Donald Trump in the latest CBS poll. That's the highest number since he's taken office. Um, 70% of Americans told CBS News that the issue of a border wall is not worth a government shutdown. 70%. When have 70% of Americans agreed on anything recently? And then, you know, the morning consult, political po- Politico poll had 54% of Americans blame Trump and the Republicans for the shutdown. That has climbed by six points um, since their last poll. So, so much for Trump's big primetime speech working. Not only did it not work, it actually probably uh, hurt things. And then the final number here, by 12 points, 47% to 35%, people think Pelosi's handling the negotiations better than Trump. Uh, Dan, what are all those numbers tell you? <laughs> it tells us the what has been obvious from the beginning, which is from the perspective of politics, which is the least important perspective in everything that's happening in the country right now. This is a disaster for the Republicans. And it is it is getting worse by the minute. And actually, I think there is something encouraging if you're really like digging fucking deep for a silver lining. <laughs> there is something encouraging in the fact that some measure of the normal, the quote unquote normal or old rules of politics still apply. Yeah. If you do something incredibly stupid that does damage to the country for no reason, you will pay a political price, which is something that we in the post 2016 environment, we were we wondered if that was still true. Yeah, I mean, Trump has not suspended the rules of politics. Political gravity does apply to him and does apply to Republicans, especially when you do things that affect the lives of ordinary Americans, right? And I do think, I mean, it is very sad in our politics right now that in order to, you know, drive Trump's approvals down this much or have this many Americans agree on something, which is that we shouldn't shut the government down over a wall— you have to start cutting into Trump's base, into the Republican base. And so, you know, you're starting to see his approval rating even among Republicans fall. And that's frankly because there's probably a lot of folks who work for the federal government or who are somehow connected to the federal government and therefore hurting in the shutdown who are Trump supporters or live in, you know, red states. And I think for them, this is probably one of the first actions Trump has taken since becoming president that has actually hurt them. There was a threat that they were going to be hurt by his decision to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but he failed at that. 
you know, they didn't like the tax plan that much because it went to the rich. Uh, farmers have been hurt by Trump's trade deals, but that's not everyone. I think this is probably the action he's taken that has caused the most widespread pain to all segments of the American population since taking office. Would you agree? Yeah, well, definitely. It is, like it has had the, the biggest impact on the most people. But it is also the stupidest fucking thing that has happened in politics in 50 years. I mean, it is unconscionably stupid what is happening. Like we like everyone knows the wall is bullshit. Yeah. Trump knows it's bullshit. The Republicans know it's bullshit. The Democrats know it's bullshit. The public knows it's bullshit. And we have shut the government down over this thing. It is so like if you just watched Trump in the cabinet room yesterday after Nancy Pelosi first rebuffed his speech and he was doing some meeting with conservatives because that's the only kind of meeting he does. Yeah. And he just had this he uh he spoke to the press and it was the most incoherent thing in the world we need a wall we're building a wall if we build the wall crime will fall that's a new slogan oh and by the way crime is really low like what the fuck are you talking about it is so like people get it like for all of the noise and the twitter and the propaganda there are some things that can still break through and this is one of them because it's so people get it Right. Yep. You can put a blind eye on it. And even if you think it's stupid, you're not going to abandon Trump on it. But the overwhelming majority of Americans can agree that this is really stupid and it should stop. So let's talk about what's next. Uh, today, senators will vote on two competing proposals to end Trump's shutdown. Uh, one bill from Senate Democrats will simply open the government for a few weeks so that both parties have time to negotiate a deal. Uh, the other bill from Senate Republicans will only open the government if Democrats agree to $5 billion in steel slats and stricter asylum laws in exchange for not deporting hundreds of thousands of immigrants, but only for three years. Um, so by the time you're all listening to this, the vote will have happened, <laughs> which means that there's probably a good chance that uh, it's unexpected, <laughs> the outcome, since we're recording this now. But it seems as if neither bill has the 60 votes necessary to pass. So uh, why do you think McConnell and Schumer agreed to put these bills on the floor? This is a tough one to sort of figure out, but I think to understand this from McConnell's perspective, right. Schumer just wants to get Republicans on the record voting against endangered Republicans getting on the record against voting for a straight up or down proposal to reopen the government. Right. That's what he wants. And because he thinks they should have to, like the Republicans in the House, be forced to vote against these bills to open the government. Right. And so it makes complete sense for him. So why did McConnell, who rules the Senate, like a dictator, allow this to happen. And so from McConnell's perspective, McConnell only doesn't care about Trump. He doesn't care about the wall. He only cares about power, Republicans being in power. That's like whatever that means he's for. And so I think he w allows this to be on the floor because he wants to, one, give his vulnerable members like Cory Gardner, who announced today, Republican from Colorado, that he's going to vote for it, a chance to get themselves well on this. And two, I think he wants to send a message to Trump that this, and maybe all other Republicans, that nothing is passing. Trump's proposal is not, I think the sooner he can kill Trump's proposal from a week and a half ago, right. the sooner we can maybe move on to something that will actually open the government. Because as long as Trump and noted dilettante Jared Kushner running around making you think that you can pass this absurd proposal that they wasted all of our time with, it, it creates a permission structure for Republicans to not cave. 
And what McConnell wants is for Trump to end this, to end it doing as as little damage to Trump as possible and not being able to cast blame on McConnell. And so I think this is at least starting to get us to that path. I think that's right. And I think McConnell also wants to show that the Democratic bill to simply open the government for a few weeks also can't pass. So then, uh, you know, he wants all the Democrats who are saying, well, if McConnell would just allow a vote, um, you know, we could open the government immediately. And he wants to prove today that that's not true. Now, the big question there is, will it get 50 votes? Yes, that was just going to say. So we know that Cory Gardner is going to vote with the Democrats to open the government. Susan Collins said that she would vote for both both bills. So that means that we have Susan. So there's at least then 49 votes for opening the government. And the question is, what will Lisa Murkowski do? Um, What will I think Tom Tillis is another vulnerable senator from North Carolina, but he said he was voting for Trump's plan. Who knows if he votes for both? What would Joni Ernst do? Maybe Purdue and Georgia. Um, Maybe you have someone like Lamar Alexander who's retiring, you know, that wants to open the government. I don't know. I can't tell you. Everyone will know by the time they listen to this podcast. Um, But I do think, you know, we have this situation then where um, if both bills die, which it seems like they may. Oh, and then we have Joe Manchin. Fucking Joe Manchin is going to vote with the Republicans and the Democrats. He's going to vote for both bills as well. Uh, and I don't know if any other Democrats will do that. Do you think any other Democrats will do that? <laughs> I, I guess we would don't know. be I guess surprised, we'll but I don't know. So I then mean, most of the other de- the most I mean sadly most of the other likely suspects for such a move lost right. in 2018. So so then I guess the question is what happens, right? So if both bills fail, then um like I still don't think Democrats should just say, okay, well, we'll start negotiating because their whole position has been open the government and then we'll negotiate, right? Like, doesn't there at least have to be a sequence here where Republicans say, okay, we will vote to open the government if we are promised a vote on X, Y, or Z, or we can immediately enter in negotiations? Like, there's got to be some face-saving <laughs> measure for the Republicans here, even though everyone's going to know that Democrats really won the fight. There are some things that have been done in previous standoffs over things much more consequential, like the future of Medicare or right. how much the government spends on the military or healthcare or things like that, that could happen here if we had something resembling a functioning government. So one thing would be, we're going to pass a two-month continuing resolution, open the government, get everyone paid, and we're going to have a process with... Three people appointed by McConnell, three yep. people appointed by Schumer, three people with Pelosi, three people uh, appointed by Skittles McCarthy, and um, <laughs> Skittles McCarthy. That should, that should have that should have been Starburst McCarthy. God damn it! <laughs> Skittles um, is so much better to say. It's more they, fun to say. They um, uh, and they're gonna say we're gonna negotiate. We're coming with a proposal and. And like, and then there's some guarantee that there'll be a vote on it. Like, there's something like that, which is totally fake and leads to nothing, but at least gives the Republicans a talking point to come down from where they are. Right. And but that is like, there's been no discussion around that. Like, no one is talking. And I mean, just the idea of how absurd this is is that the fact that the only proposal on the table was this is a proposal to get Democrats and Republicans together to open the government was concocted by. 
Trump, Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell, and Jared Kushner, none of whom are Democrats, without talking to a single Democrat. And then, if that was not absurd enough, as you guys pointed out on Tuesday, then Stephen Miller went around and inserted all kinds of poison pills into the bill. And so there's not even – like no one is talking. There is no effort to get it going, and that's because the Republicans are too wrapped around the axle of stupidity to make progress. And so we're sort of stuck. So let's talk about what the Democrats can do here. And also, um, it does seem like at least a few Democrats are getting anxious for reasons that I can't understand. Uh, there were reports that some House Democrats were thinking about making a counteroffer to Trump that would include more funding for border security, but not the wall. Uh, Jim Clyburn, who's number three in the House, even talked about $5 billion for a, quote, smart wall that basically involves technology and drones and shit like that. Um, I thought that was a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, what, what, what are they doing there, Dan? What's going on? Can I make a recommendation that for the Democrats that the only people allowed to speak are Nancy Pelosi and people who've been in Congress less than eight years? Yeah. <laughs> like everyone, everyone else, just take a step back and let these people handle it because it's just, I just, it's a mess. Do you? Th- I have a question for you. Do you think? Democrats are hand now put aside the actual strategy of trying to open the government without endorsing uh, legislative hostage taking as a means of governance. Uh-huh. Do you think the Democrats are approaching this the right way or doing enough? Doing enough to end the shutdown? Yeah, just like from every perspective, right? Are they taking it seriously enough? Are they messaging it right? Are they messaging it enough, et cetera? Um, I think they are. Uh, by and large, I, I it's like the problem with what Clyburn said yesterday is we have a message. The message is open the government and we'll negotiate. Right. And I actually think that may be Clyburn's position. And he was just like quoted sort of getting out ahead of, OK, once the government is open, perhaps we'll negotiate up to five billion dollars in non wall security funding. Right. Which I still don't know why you'd throw out fucking five billion dollars, which is Trump's number, but whatever. But I do think the message out of every single Democrat's mouth is like, we are open to negotiate anything that is not a wall, Trump's wall, but anything around border security and immigration once the government is open. Through a normal legislative process, government shutdowns are bad. They are inflicting pain on this country. It has to stop. That is number one. It just has to stop. We are open to all kinds of negotiations once this government is open and people in this country are getting paid again. And I think as long as they stay on that message and at that negotiating position, then they're in good shape. I do think, and you know, we're just going to talk about this, but like, I think all of us need to sort of ratchet up pressure on the outside. Um, You know, I heard that calls to the Senate still were more pro-wall and Trump than they were um, pro-Democrat position of ending the shutdown, which is not reflective of public opinion by a fucking country mile. <laughs> so I-, I think that there needs to be a lot more pressure and, you know, there's going to be move-ons organizing a protest. We can talk about that in a second. And so I think that, and I also think the Democrats could do even more, and we're going to try to do this today on the pod, to sort of elevate the stories of people who are being hurt by this shutdown. Um, because those stories are multiplying and they are intensifying and they are very sad and they are very painful for people. And I think we need to sort of step up the urgency. And that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm glad like, like you were glad that the state of the union silliness is over because that whole thing just looks like a 
tit-for-tat game, even though Nancy Pelosi did the exact right thing and Trump caved. Like, I want to get back to the real crux of this shutdown, which is the pain that people are feeling across this country. The fact that um, by having the government shut down, it's putting the rest of us in jeopardy, our safety, our security, whether it's flying on planes, eating food that hasn't been inspected, um, you know, the FBI doesn't have enough people. I mean, it's like crazy what's going on right now, putting us in danger and jeopardizing, uh, jeopardizing the economy and potentially sending us into a recession. So I think like that should be the main democratic message and they should figure out a million different ways to get that message out every single day. So I agree with everything you said, except I think I agree with the democratic strategy. I agree with the democratic message. I do think the body language of a lot of Democrats, ourselves sometimes, the press, is inconsistent with the massive crisis that's happening in the country. Yeah. Like we've become so inured to the stupidity and the insanity of the Trump era. I agree. That we're kind of all going along with our lives while 800,000 of our citizens are not getting paid. I totally As agree. As you point out, we're not inspecting airplanes. The air traffic controllers say the system's about to break. We're not inspecting lettuce. The Coast Guard, which is a branch of our military, is not getting paid right now over this. And it is just like this weird thing that if you turn on the new, like the shutdown's getting lots of news coverage. It's getting a lot of local news coverage on local impacts. And that's very important. But there's also it's just I just it just feels to me like we're not fully focusing on the fact that we're in the process of of doing real damage. People who work for the government who theoretically have good, solid government jobs are going to food banks. Yeah. And being laughed at by Wilbur Ross uh, for that, that uh, we're just not doing. And so I guess what I would say is we have to like I think. And part of that is because we we don't believe that the normal rules of politics can pressure Trump into doing something. So we're not doing the things we would normally do. I've been a part of, as you have, shutdowns and debt ceiling crises, and people don't go home for the weekend. By the time this pod comes out, most of Congress is going to flown home for the weekend. Now, I'm sure they're going to meet with their constituents who are affected there. But like, why are they not like camped out in front of television cameras, holding press conferences? Why is the senator not trying to keep the Senate open with a filibuster yeah. for 36 straight hours yep. to try to draw attention to this? Like, It doesn't feel like we are using every tool in the toolbox to try to bring this to an end. And I think there's two groups that I think could do more. Like, Where are the ads targeting these vulnerable members of Congress, both in the House and the Senate, to try to push, to put pressure on them to do the right thing. Yeah. Like there is, as far as I could tell, like if, if someone has seen those ads or they are happening, I would be excited to be corrected. But it seems like everyone just like, eh, we're winning. The polls say we're winning, so we're not going to do more. And the second group are the, the half dozen or so Democratic presidential candidates. They yeah. happen to be, for the most part, the best messengers in the party, which is why they think they can win the White House. And by virtue of the fact that they are now potential presidents of the United States, they command more press attention than every Democrat other than maybe Nancy Pelosi. And so they, when they are giving their announcement speeches, when they're doing their interviews, when they're going to Iowa, New Hampshire, they should be talking about the shutdown first and foremost, more than anything else. Like it is like there's this we like I'm watching some of the videos these campaigns are pointing out, some of the things they're saying. And it feels so disconnected from what is happening. Like, what you can do first is help 
force the government open again by using the bully pulpit that you have by virtue of being a presidential candidate. That is the right thing to do. I think it's probably even good politics for you. Like Kamala Harris is giving her announcement speech in Oakland this weekend. Uh, I'm excited to see it, but I hope she spends a lot of time talking about the shutdown and using that is a speech will probably be covered live on cable news. It'll get press coverage and she should use it to hammer home the exact message you were talking about the shutdown. We have, I think we have to do more. We have to do more. Members of presidential candidates have to do more. Democratic groups have to do more. I think there's, it just feels like more can and should be done here because this is a horrible crisis. And if we, this keeps going, something really bad things are going to happen to families and something really bad could happen in this country because we are taking our eye off the ball on things like airline security. Yeah. No, look, I, I completely, completely agree with this. And it's like, if, if you like years from now, if you look back at this period of time in 2019 and you look at last weekend, um, you will be fucking bewildered beyond belief that the top story was about fucking Covington High School and something that was going on on the National Mall um, when 800,000 Americans in the country weren't getting a fucking paycheck. It is fucking gross <laughs> that we are so attention-addled <laughs> um, that we can't focus on like the big problem and crisis at hand in the country and we have to go to yet another like fucking twitter generated controversy and and you know it ends up on the today show and all across the news and everything like that it's it's obscene um i will say you're like if you turn on tv the entire american business community as far as i can tell has put on very expensive fur coats yeah fucking davos davos to heckle Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like while the like Rome is burning people, like let's get focused. The economy may contract, may have zero growth this quarter, which affects everyone, people who need jobs, people who need better wages, and your companies who care so much about your bottom lines while you're spending your fucking Trump tax cut on artisanal hot chocolate. Get back to America and do something for your company and your customers. Artisanal hot chocolate. Sounds like it sounds a, delicious. Right? <laughs> I, I kind of made that up. I'm not sure it's a real thing. No, and look, you're right about the candidates too. Um, I saw Kamala Harris's interview with Maddow last night, and she talked about it, which was great. I think Elizabeth Warren was with uh, TSA workers at Logan Airport, unless I'm imagining that. I think she was this week too, which is good. But you're right. Like it, it could, it should be a part of every presidential candidate's announcement what they what they're talking about. And also, by the way, like you can connect it to a larger message about you know, government being fucking broken in the Trump era and politics being broken and, and democracy being at risk here. I mean, I think I think when the shutdown first happened, you know, Better wrote a media, medium post about that uh, as well, how like it was a it was a larger issue of our, you know, democracy. But it's like everyone's now got to go do something about that. Right. Like show up, join protest, use your platform um, to end this thing. I think that's like the most, I think that's the number one priority of presidential candidates, both because it is the right substantive thing to do for the country and you have the power to help, which is the most important thing, but also like it can fit easily into your political message. So you don't have to choose there, you know? Yeah, Beto, point your car in the direction of some unpaid federal workers, go do a press conference with them and you can blog about it, but everyone's got to scrub in here because this is Everyone should jump in, yeah. Everyone. So what can people do? Call your senators and tell them to open the fucking government, Uh, especially if you live in 
Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Kentucky, Iowa, Maine, or North Carolina, which all have Republican senators who are up in 2020 or could be vulnerable or are moderate enough to possibly um, vote with the Democrats here. Uh, you can call them at 202-224-3121. Um, then, on Tuesday, January 29th, which was supposed to be the date of the State of the Union that has been canceled, MoveOn.org is holding a Shut Down the Wall, Open the Government Day of Action. You can check out MoveOn.org slash Shutdown to uh, find an event near you. Uh, so check that out. There's going to be a lot of people, a um, lot of events. So that's a, that's a great thing to be part of. Most importantly, no matter where you are, you can support federal workers in your community by donating to local food banks uh, and help spread the word how others can help. So definitely look up local food banks in your area. They really need the help. Wilbur fucking Ross, our billionaire commerce secretary, was on television this morning saying he doesn't understand why people would need to use food banks who aren't getting paid by the federal government. He was like, can't they just get loans? Yeah, you can get a fucking loan that has a crazy high interest rate. Um, there are a few banks that are actually tr tr providing bridge loans to federal workers at 0% interest rates, but they're not that many. And so there's a lot of people who can't just go get a fucking loan that they're not going to be able to pay back because they can't pay back the interest rate. And Wilbur Ross doesn't get that because he's a fucking billionaire, just like everyone else in the Trump cabinet, and they have no idea how normal people live. It's so bad. It's really it's bad. bad. It's really, <laughs> it's really bad. Anyway, that's what you can do. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. Uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Okay. There was some other news. 
Uh, in other news on Wednesday, Michael Cohen announced that he's indefinitely postponing his testimony before Congress, which was scheduled to take place in early February. That wouldn't have been the craziest news ever, except for the statement from Cohen lawyer Lanny Davis about why he's not testifying. Quote, due to ongoing threats against his family from President Trump and Mr. Giuliani as recently as this weekend, as well as Mr. Cohen's continued cooperation with ongoing investigations by advice of counsel, Mr. Cohen's appearance will be postponed to a later date. Totally normal, right, Dan? The man who implicated the president in multiple felonies is scared to testify because the president keeps issuing vague threats about investigating his father-in-law. <sighs> should, should, I mean, should Cohen I be scared like here? I said this <laughs> 1,000 times since Trump became president. But it's worth noting again that if Trump had communicated these threats privately through a letter, through a phone call, secondhand through one of his goon sons, it would be an obvious crime and people would freak out about it. But because Trump does all of his crimes out in the open, we think it's fine. Like, Twitter is not Hamsterdam. Like, the laws apply there. Like, you have to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like if you tamper with a witness on Twitter, it's still witness tampering. Like what? It's just, and every Republican is like, cool, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, like Cohen doesn't seem great. Like tamper away, threaten his family. He's threatening his fucking family. Like a third tier character from Sopranos. The whole thing is. Yeah. Wild. I mean, look in the New York times, uh, Chuck Rosenberg, who's a former senior DOJ and FBI official. He was saying like, even if Cohen said Trump's comments didn't intimidate him, and that he would testify, those comments could still constitute witness tampering because witness tampering is even trying to intimidate a witness or tamper with a witness's testimony. So, you know, we found out this morning that the Senate Intelligence Committee is issuing a subpoena to Cohen to come testify. Unclear whether that's closed door or a public hearing, but in the past they've asked for him to come uh, to do closed door testimony. I think House Democrats have basically said that they're going to issue a subpoena to Cohen as well, they might have already by the time you listen to this. Is that the is that the right move, Dan? Yeah, I think so. I think let's. We don't know whether Trump is going to fire Mueller, whether he's going to shut the investigation down, whether the Mueller report will ever see the light of day, based on what uh, potentially future Attorney General uh, Bill Barr said. So the Democrats need like let's have a belt and suspenders approach to our criminal president, and let's have Congress creating a record of what he did because we may need it for impeachment hearings and a trial in the Senate one day. Yeah. No, and I think, and that goes back to the first thing we raised, which is like, should Democrats also be formally looking into the fact that the president is trying to intimidate witnesses? I mean, you know, as we were just saying, the country's in a crisis right now because the government shut down. But the reason I want to talk about this Cohen thing is like uh, the president intimidated a witness, a potential witness against him <laughs> and, and led that witness to decide not to testify in front of Congress yesterday. Like that seems to be big fucking news. Yes. We're, I mean, and it's part of a pattern here. Let's not forget uh, Trump's attorneys talking about potential pardons with Manafort's attorneys earlier in this process, the very strange uh, joint defense agreement that Manafort has had with Trump's attorneys to continue talking to them throughout this process, even after Manafort had agreed to plead guilty and cooperate with the special counsel. There was a lot of smoke here. Yeah. And look, I mean, it raises a larger question, which is, you know, how are Democrats handling their oversight authority so far? Um, you know, we've, we've had a couple of weeks now, Congress in session. I know they're still setting up the oversight committee. They just added, um, you know, AOC and a few other freshmen. 
to the committee. Uh, they announced that just this week. So everything's still getting set up. But um, did you think the Democrats would be moving even faster by now or should they? I think I am surprised. I know this takes time. Mm. It absolutely does. You got to get your committee. I think they're just added people to the oversight committee and you got to get up and running. But time is of the essence here. Like we are in the middle of a national crisis and there is two years of constitutional checks and balances to do. And we got to we got to get going. I'm surprised. And it's obviously the shutdown hangs over this. So I understand it. It doesn't affect the what Congress is doing because Congress is getting paid in the shutdown. But yeah. there I am surprised there has not been a high profile oversight hearing yet and that there have not been subpoenas issued yet. And I think that should um, that I mean, it should happen as soon as possible. And I'm not entirely yeah. sure what the benefit of waiting is. And look, you know, Adam Schiff gave an interview <clears throat> this week where he sort of threw out some concerns he has, um, which is that, you know, William Barr, uh, Trump's nominee for attorney general, uh, looks like he could get confirmed, even though he's suggested in the past that sitting president should not be indicted. Uh, it's not clear whether Barr will end up uh, sharing everything that Mueller comes up with, with Congress, with the public. Um, and so, you know, if those things happen, Trump starts closing off all avenues to um, hold him accountable for his behavior. And basically, the only recourse at that point is Schiff and other Democrats in the House like you just said, making sure there is a record of all the misdeeds for either potential impeachment hearings or at least for the public to judge at some point, because it, it does seem like we don't know how Barr is going to be as AG. But, you know, if he if he doesn't indict Trump, then impeachment's the only remedy. But to impeach Trump um, and to have a, you know, a full, fair, transparent impeachment trial, you need to know a lot of information. And, you know, if Trump's hiding this information or if he's intimidating witnesses like Cohen so that they don't share the information, then the public's not going to have the information it needs so that their representatives can, you know, um, hold a trial. And it's important to remember that tr that Trump's criminality is not confined to his dealings with Russia or even the contents of the Southern District of New York investigation into the Stormy Daniels case. Yeah. That is only a small fraction of the crimes that Trump may or may not have committed. And the and you could pro, you could almost certainly make an incredibly compelling case for the impeachment of the President of the United States without ever using the word Russia. Yeah. And therefore there's all these other avenues beyond just Russia. The 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 Trump Hotel, emoluments, all these other things that are incredibly sketchy that need to be looked into. The Trump inauguration, for instance, which seemed like a giant money laundering scam since they spent more money than anyone in history and had fewer people. Imagine that. And like getting to the bottom of all of that is incredibly important. Like we that it Mueller will handle some of this, but he won't handle all of it. And we can never be positive that Mueller will get the opportunity to finish his job. Yeah. Trump has corrupted the office of the presidency in many different ways. And among many other priorities, it is the Democrats' job now to reveal to the country and to stitch together a narrative with proof, with evidence, that he has corrupted the office of the presidency and to put all that together. And I think they need to, uh, they need to get working on that. All right. 
let's talk uh, let's talk 2020. The newest candidate competing for the Democratic nomination for president is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. He's a 37-year-old military veteran who'd make history as the youngest president and the first openly gay president. President Obama name-checked him in a New Yorker interview a few years ago as one of the future faces of the party. He recently made an unsuccessful bid for the DNC chair. Uh, Buttigieg has not released a platform yet, but he said that he supports Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. He's also supported minimum wage increases during his time as mayor um, and helped economically turn around the city of South Bend. Dan, what do you think of Mayor Pete's candidacy? (laughs) <laughs> I do think that basically I support Medicare for all is like the password that gets you into the Democratic primary. <laughs> like you, when you knock on the door and they're like, what's the password? If you don't say I support Medicare for all, they just they say, yeah, you Lord help the person uh, who which does is it. great. Yeah, I'm all for that. Uh, I look, I when you say the mayor of South Bend, Indiana is running for president, it's on its face seems absurd. Right. <laughs> but I will say that. I think uh, Pete Buttigieg is an incredibly talented politician. I think there was something very compelling about certainly his life story and bio is as impressive as you can get from serving in the military to being a Rhodes Scholar to the work he did as the mayor of Indiana. I remember you and I interviewed him on yeah. Pod Save America. Yeah, we did. Uh, last year. He's a friend of the pod. Two years ago. We've been doing this so long, two years ago. It was when he was running for DNC chair. And I was supporting Tom Perez. I f- can't remember if you had started supporting Tom Perez at that point, but we had all the candidates on. And I I knew of Pete Buttigieg, you know, from many people, Barack Obama himself talking about him, but I hadn't actually spoken to him before. And you and I walked away being incredibly impressed with him. He's compelling. And he's earnest. He's thoughtful. I think he's yeah. got a lot to offer. I would not. Is he the favorite to win? No. Is he? Is it a, a long road for... A mayor of a smaller smaller city in Indiana to be uh, the president of the United States, absolutely. But he has talent, and he and I'm interested to see the case he makes. Yeah, and look, I'm always interested in in the case, particularly in the message. And I do think watching you know his video yesterday and seeing him speak, he is leaning heavily on uh, his age, his young age, as an asset. Um, you know, the line he used was, what will America look like in 2054 when I reach the age of the current president, uh, which is funny and also a, a good question. Um, he said, you know, I'm the only one to live a middle class lifestyle in a middle class city in middle America. He was saying that his underdog status, which he's embracing, you know, allows him to embrace big ideas, talk about new ideas. So, you know, the test now is what are those new ideas? Right. And what are those big ideas? Um, I think the challenges he will have are obviously experience. Like you said, it's he was mayor of a, a small town, though yesterday he answered this by saying, um, I have more executive experience than Mike Pence. I have more legislative experience than Donald Trump. And I have more military experience than the two of them combined, which is a good retort. <laughs> it's a good retort. <laughs> That's uh, great. I wanted to read a tweet from our friend and former Obama White House colleague, Ben LeBolt, about this. Yeah. So this is what LeBolt tweeted yesterday after the announcement. He said, there's some talk about whether the mayor of South Bend is ready to be POTUS, but a credible, openly gay candidate that breaks down every old stereotype is good for America. When I came out, I referenced Will and Grace. Imagine what a gay kid seeing Pete Buttigieg run will think. And you like that is, I mean, a really important thing to think about the power of this, particularly when you were just when, you know, 12 years ago, the 
uh, Democratic, everyone running for the Democratic presidency was opposed to marriage equality. Right. And 16 years after the president of the United States ran and was reelected on a homophobic attack on gay people in this country with a by running on a constitutional amendment. Yeah. And we've come and I think that this like you should not for all the other conversation about whether he can be president, whether he will be president, there is something in, important and powerful happening here that's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. And so I thought Ben's tweet really summarized that. Yeah, me too. Look, and I think the the challenge he'll have is also standing out as all of them will have, or a lot of them will have, standing out in a very crowded field when you don't start with a lot of name recognition in the country. Um, and, you know, he's not even potentially the only mayor. Um, Julian Castro was the mayor of San Antonio. He's running. Um, potentially Garcetti runs, the mayor of L.A. Potentially Bloomberg was the mayor of New York. So he's not the only mayor. He's not the only young candidate. He probably is the youngest candidate, tied with Tulsi Gabbard, who's also 37. And there's some other candidates, potential candidates in their early 40s. So, you know, it's he, he may be one of the only veterans in the field, actually, unless... Uh, our friend John Kerry gets in. Um, so it's it's interesting, like, you know, how, how he'll stand out in this field. But, um, you know, we'll see. Everyone in the pool. All right. Let's talk about our pal, Joe Biden. On Wednesday, the New York Times ran a piece about how the former vice president lost some friends among Michigan Democrats when he gave a paid speech for the Economic Club of Southwestern Michigan, in which he ended up saying friendly things about Fred Upton, a longtime Republican member of Congress whose family's foundation supports the Economic Club. Uh, Upton later used Biden's praise in an ad and ended up winning his race for re-election in November by about four points. This morning, Joe Biden responded by saying, quote, I read in the New York Times today that one of my problems is if I ever run for president, I like Republicans. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. But from where I come from, I don't know how else you get anything done. Dan, what do you think about all this? I will stipulate now and many times over the next two years if Joe Biden runs for president that I am hopelessly biased when it comes to Joe Biden. Yeah. He, I am from Delaware. He has been omnipresent in my life uh, as my senator and then Barack Obama's vice president. I think he is a truly remarkable and very human politician. He has faced unbelievable personal tragedy and every time handled it with strength and use that tragedy to help other people, whether it's finding a cure for cancer or just stopping people in the hallway at the White House or going through tough times and talking them through it from the perspective of what he suffered. He is a he is not a perfect person. He has flaws as a person and candidate like we all do, but he is one of America's most human politicians. Yeah. The question for Joe Biden if he decides to run is is his old school approach of politics born in a different era in relation to a very different Republican Party than the one Trump leads now? Is that appropriate for the crisis moment in America? And I'm not sure it is. I don't yeah. I I would love to live in a world where Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell can get in a room and they could figure out how to get Medicare for all and, you know, cut some deal like the mythology that isn't really true of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. Like, is that possible? I don't think that's possible. I think the only way to return American politics to something like normalcy is to beat these Republicans and beat them bad and beat them over and over again. And I don't think befriending them is the way to get it done. And I think that, that Joe, I think it's going to be a tough case for Joe Biden to make 
if he were to run for run in the Democratic primary. Now, to his credit, he is not changing his he's being very clear about what he's doing. Like there's nothing in polling or Twitter or in conversation Democratic activists that suggests this is a good message, but it is what he believes in he's doing and then there will either be a market for it or there won't. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, you know, the fact that he said that this morning means he's not shying away from this at the very least, which, you know, good for you if that's what you believe. Look, I, th- this was a tough one. Like, you, you read the story and you can see why Joe Biden did this, right? Fred Upton was instrumental in helping increasing funding for cancer research. That means a lot to Joe Biden, lost his son to cancer. And so, and Joe Biden's already prone to want to work with people across the aisle. So he says something nice about Upton. You, you know, you you understand why that would happen. Upton also tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is, you know, a bit discordant with trying to increase funding for cancer research. But, you know, Joe Biden is the type of person who says, I don't agree with you on one thing, but I like what you did on something else. And so I'm going to say you're a good person to work with you because I want to work with you again. But you're right that the bigger question around there is, you know, how Democratic candidates and 2020 candidates handle the fact that the Republican Party since at least as far back as 2009 when Barack Obama took office, but really long before that, um, has been unwilling and in some cases unable to cooperate or compromise with Democrats in any significant way. Potentially around the margins, you know, you get a few Republican senators and Democratic senators working together on some bill that they can both stand up there and say, look at us, we passed this bipartisan bill, it's great. But it's not like a significant, significant policy change, right? These are like smaller legislative achievements. There have been no Republicans willing to cooperate with Democrats on any significant pieces of legislation. And that includes the fucking Affordable Care Act, which was, you know, parts of it were uh, born in the Heritage Foundation and parts of it were Mitt Romney, Republican Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts. And they still tried to paint that as socialism, right? So I think we learned over the course of the Obama presidency, because Obama was, of course, Obama was the president who came into office saying, I want to work with Republicans and Democrats. I want to bring people together to get things done. And we learned over the course of eight years, painfully, that that was not possible. And that even when Republicans wanted to compromise with Obama, um, they couldn't because the Tea Party and the right wing and the people who eventually made Donald Trump president refuse to let other Republicans cooperate with Democrats. That is the political reality of where we are right now. And the question is, how do Democratic candidates in 2020 grapple with that political reality while still appealing to those voters in the party and people in the country who know Washington is broken, don't fully know to blame Republicans for this, and just want the endless political warfare to end? And I don't know. I think it's tough because, yeah. because it, look, it's not just Joe Biden, right? Like there was a story in the New York Times about Beto's friendship with moderate Republican Congressman Will Hurd, um, and he didn't endorse Gina Ortiz Jones because of this friendship, this pre-existing friendship. Um, Cory Booker talks about the need to love our political opponents. Kirsten Gillibrand emphasized working with Republicans to get things done many times since she's announced during our interview she did too. Um, you hear that kind of language from Amy Klobuchar. Elizabeth Warren even was in Iowa talking about working with Chuck Grassley on hearing aid legislation. Why do you think, Dan, candidates are emphasizing this anyway? Are they seeing something in polling? Is there a feeling in the country that they're trying to reflect I think in some cases, it, these are personal decisions. I think Biden's is 
who who he is and his experience. Plus, as you say, he was grateful for what Fred Upton did, and Joe Biden is not going to not say that publicly. Joe Biden always says what is on his mind. That is yeah. <laughs> both his strength and his greatest weakness as a politician. And so he did that. Beto's decision, as I understand it, was very personal over a relationship that he had built with Will Hurd. I do think that people want to get things done. Like, politi- like for all of the cynicism about politicians, people run for office to do things. Yeah, And ultimately, the only way to do things is to be able to get both parties together. That is, except in those rare moments where you have single party control of the, of the government. But even then, for most things, you're going to need some number of Republicans to get to 60 or whatever else. And they just, they want to get things done and that's the way to do it. I think, I think the country wants to be unified. I think they would like that they know what is happening is wrong and terrible. The question is, how do you get there? And I don't think you get there with more cocktail parties and more pats on the back. Right. And that is a different world. And I think that this is – and I think Beto, who you and I both like a lot and have spent time with, but I think he was wrong to not endorse Gina Ortiz-Jones. And I say that only because the Republican Party under Donald Trump is one of the greatest threats to American democracy – in decades, whether it is the authoritarian impulses of Trump, voter suppression, uh, allowing billionaires to run our government and lobbyists to run our government, and the only way to stop that is to get Democrats in office. And that is more important than anything else, than personal relationships, than gratitude for uh, something someone wants. It doesn't mean you can't say it. It doesn't mean you can't uh, be balanced about it, but it is – like this is it. And I like my approach to politics has fundamentally changed in the last few years. I have, I have seen the light and I think Democrats need to change our approach to politics to reflect the severity of the times. The Republicans stole a Supreme court seat two years ago yeah. that will for decades affect every progressive policy that we are, if that we will ever be fortunate enough to pass. And yeah. if they are willing to do that, I, we do not. We should not be like them. We should not be a paler shade of orange. But we have to confront the threat with the seriousness of the threat. I agree, and I, I mean I, I've gone through the same experience as well. Like my my approach to politics has changed um, because of what we witnessed during Obama's presidency, and of course now the Trump presidency. Um, my question is: Has the country's view changed um and has the democratic party's view changed so you know i would look this up because pew asked this question pew research they say you know would you prefer uh politicians who are willing to compromise with the other party or politicians who want to stick to their principles and positions and as recently as last july okay 69 percent of democrats said they preferred elected officials who made compromises um, and that was a bigger number than Republicans. Republicans don't want to compromise. Democrats mainly did. But today, just 46% of Democrats say they prefer elected officials who make compromises versus more who believe that they want their politicians to stick by their principles. So the Democratic Party is changing on this. And I think that Trump may have changed a lot of them, too. But, you know, uh, only 46% say this. That's still a big chunk of the party who would rather 
their politicians make compromises than always stick to their positions. And that is that's a tougher position for us to be. That's that's more of a heterogeneous position in our within our party than Republicans who most of the Republicans just don't fucking want compromise at all and want their politicians to stick to their guns and that's that. We are a more ideologically diverse party than they are and just a more diverse party in general and I think you're seeing a lot of these 2020 candidates contend with the fact that there's about half our party who still thinks compromise is the answer. And I wonder what I wonder what politicians and what leaders in the party do about that. I think I think what you see is you see this sort I mean we saw this during my interview with uh Gillibrand, right? Like I asked her and I hope to ask all the candidates this. I hope we all ask the candidates this. Um you know, you have this big bold progressive agenda, Medicare for all, Green New Deal. Um the only way to pass that is with 51 votes, maybe. There's no way you're going to get 60 votes for that agenda. So are you going to get rid of the filibuster? And, you know, she, she said she'd think about it, but she had some discomfort saying that she would get rid of the filibuster. So you have all these candidates out there with these, you know, Medicare for all, big progressive agendas. And yet they're all sort of, so far at least, they, many of them seem um, wary of playing politics like Mitch McConnell and the Republican have and Republicans have played politics over the last decade. And I think that's going to be something they all have to grapple with. It's like, can you can you run on and be a politician and a president who tries to heal the wounds in, of division in this country while still aggressively pushing for your progressive policies that actually have majority support in the country, right? Do you, that like is the, the question is like Medicare for all is on its face very popular. Elements of the Green New Deal will be very popular. Um, tax, you know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's tax plan or something like it, very popular. Like, can you push for popular policies and try to unite people around them without allowing the Republicans to basically have? minority veto on every on what matters and to say like compromise is an idea where you get half i get half but the problem is republicans move the window so far the right that you basically get a quarter or a third or nothing if you want something at all can you can you fight fire with fire with republicans and still try to unite unite the country so that at some point if you can break the fever within this version of the Republican Party, we can have a more uni- unified, better America going forward. And that I think that is the test for what will be the best Democratic candidate, whoever that is. Yeah. And look, one potential option here for Democratic candidates is to talk about the division in this country as something that has been caused and fostered by Donald Trump and the Republican Party and Republican politicians. Right. You, I don't think you need to go after... Republican voters here, because there's some Republican voters, not many, but there's a few that Democrats could get. And certainly you get a whole bunch of independents and you need a whole bunch of independents. Right. So I think that, you know, Donald Trump has divided us against each other and the Republican Party over the last decade has tried to divide us against each other by race, by gender, um, by class. Um, They have continued to do this, you know, and and why do they do it? They do it so that their rich friends, their donors, their powerful people can stay in power and become richer. And they hope that by dividing everyone else against each other, that no one will notice that they're fucking taking all the spoils and enriching themselves in the process. And 
we shouldn't be as divided as we are in this country by race, by gender, by where we live, because there should be more that unites us than divides us. But there are people, but you have to point out the people who are responsible for the division in this country. It didn't happen by magic. It didn't happen because our politics is broken and both sides did X or Y. It happened because a specific group of very powerful, wealthy people in this country wanted to have it happen that way. And so there is a possibility for unity in this country, but we have to unite around these forces that have div divided us for far too long. To me, that's like one way to sort of bridge this need for a very progressive, more democratic agenda, small d democratic agenda, with the fact that there's people in this country who don't want endless political warfare. That's right. I think, I think that's exactly right. The, we, what we are advocating for is not the flip side of what Republicans are advocating for. Right. Like, and I think that's important to remember. What a large part of, of the Republican agenda under Trump, which is essentially, as you point out, billionaire-funded racial grievance politics, yeah. is to give more power to the wealthiest in this country and to diminish the political power of the individual yeah. by making their vote count less through gerrymandering, by making their voice uh, count less because of campaign finance laws that benefit corporations and billionaires and can like can you make an argument for and have a policy platform that is democratic small d right that is yeah. good for democracy like to, to be fighting for every individual person to have a voice in this country and a share in this country and to be able to benefit from it by having a universal right to health care or universal or or pre-k or child care whatever the thing is that is to return power to the person from the wealthy, and if can you do? Can that be a unifying message? And I and I think I think it can. It's just, but you don't have to write off all half the country to do that, right? And look, you may have to yeah. write off half the members of Congress. I think about what our you know our friend Adi Barkin uh, wrote in the Nation, and uh, when he said, you know, we've learned that the cure to what ails democracy is more democracy. And I think that's true when it comes to voting rights. That's true when it comes to um, how we handle economic policy in this country. It's true. You know, it's, it's true for everything. And so I do think that is a, a strong message for, uh, for Democratic candidates to run on. OK, when we come back, you will hear from folks who have been affected by this shutdown, whose families have been affected by this shutdown, um, who have called in to Crooked Media over the last couple of days and left messages um, and so we will hear those voices next. Again, um, donate to your local food pantry and call your senators and moveon.org. Go there uh, to figure out uh, if there's a, a rally or event near you on Tuesday the 29th uh, so we can end this fucking shutdown. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who 
could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether. Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. All right, so we set up a voicemail uh, just a couple days ago and asked everyone who's been affected by the shutdown, whose families are being affected by the shutdown, to call in and share your stories. And we were overwhelmed with calls. Thank you so much for everyone who called in. And we decided to go through and share some of those calls with all of you right now. So here they are. Hey, this is Tommy Vitor from Pod Save America. We want to hear how the shutdown is affecting you. So let us know how is the government shutdown affecting your life. Let us know your name and where you're calling from. And thank you so much for letting us know. My name is Kyle. I'm 25 and I'm calling from Washington, D.C. I started my job working in international trade for the federal government in the first week of November. The shutdown happened less than a month, just over a month after, within two weeks of when I had moved into a brand new apartment when rent and security deposits were due after I had moved across the country from Texas with no furniture. Now, I live with a girlfriend and rely on her income. I have to walk to food banks as a 25-year-old who has to restructure his student loans and who hasn't built up all of the savings and who hasn't even built up the credibility within the city to lean on friends or have support groups. The shutdown hits me every day on... uh personal well-being level on a mental well-being level there's only so many times you can tour the lobby of your apartment and walk the dog before you start to watch the news and feel like you're being held hostage by a president hi my name is sam i'm calling from iowa city iowa i'm a clinical researcher here at the children's hospital um, and we have two very sick newborn boys who need access to uh, an experimental drug that's currently held at the NIH. The problem is that part of the NIH is currently shut down. So we contacted the FDA to see if we could grant them access to the drug to have the NIH release it, but that part of the FDA is also shut down. So we contacted our local uh, senator, Chuck Grassley, who was nothing but unhelpful for the entire process. So we've been going back channels, contacting anyone we can think of, trying to get these boys access to this drug so that they don't die. They're, we've been doing it at it for two weeks now and have gotten pretty much nowhere. So one of the boys got a lot sicker two nights ago, and we've had to resort to getting emergency access to this drug so that these newborns don't die. Thankfully, the emergency Banded access person at the FDA is one of the only people still working there, unfortunately unpaid, and she's been trying to help us to get the drug for these two boys so they don't die. We're hoping that we have a great end to the story in a couple days and they're able to get the drug, but at this point, we just don't know. Hi, guys. I'm Chris calling from Maine. Uh, I work for the National Weather Service, and I don't call to share my story in how the shutdown is affecting me and my family personally. Uh, we're some of the lucky ones that 
we moved into a new house and were able to sell our old condo and have some savings to fall back on, something that many people that I work with are not lucky enough to have. But I call to tell you guys more about some of the untold costs of the shutdown. I originally decided to work for the National Weather Service because that's where the best of the best forecasters and meteorologists worked when I was growing up and going through school. And my fear is that shutdowns like this is going to depress interest in the future of this country uh, as far as the forecasting community to come up and decide to work in public service. Uh, and that is disappointing to me. And in, in a more immediate impact, it's making this country less safe when it comes to weather forecasts. Uh, equipment is harder to fix. It's harder to find money to do that preventative maintenance. And outreach and research has all but stopped at this point. And we have hurricane season just around the corner. And after what we just experienced with Hurricanes Irma and Maria, getting that public awareness and getting the emergency management community prepared for hurricane season is one of the biggest things we do this time of year. And that is not happening at this point. And as a whole, it is, it's a disappointment and, and can infect way more people than just the nearly 4,000 uh, of my colleagues that are not being paid for the work they're doing 24-7, 365. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for allowing people to share their stories. Hi. Um, I'm calling – my name is Summer, and I'm calling from central Pennsylvania. Um, my husband is an essential worker, so he has been working for the last 30 days now without pay. It's stressful on our family. We have a five-year-old – or, I'm sorry, a new six-year-old and a 13-year-old. Those kids require things like food and new clothes, and they have activities that they're in that they love and that they don't want to give up. They also, my husband is, uh, has CML, and that's the good kind of leukemia. It's manageable through, it's manageable through pills, but the pills are pretty expensive every month. Um, and even with the copay, we pay out of pocket for some of that. And that's one of those things that we've had to consider whether or not, I mean, obviously we're going to keep up with it, but it's, it's hard. It's a hard, hard decisions are being made. I will say the only positive thing to come out of this is that my husband has my longtime husband, um, lifelong Republican, has become a Democrat. Um, he switched his voter registration over this uh, manufactured crisis, and uh, that's something at least. Thanks. Bye. Hi, my name is Genevieve, and I'm calling from <clears throat> Gainesville, Florida. The government shutdown is affecting my family in the fact that my father was set to retire at the end of December, but due to the shutdown, he is not officially retired and is not receiving any paychecks. Um, my mother is retired and going through cancer treatments right now, so there's a lot of stress and issue going on with that, and now um, I am going to have to help pay their mortgage and buy gas and groceries because they are only two paychecks ahead of everything in their life as far as their finances. And this is incredibly um, stressful, and it strips away the dignity of all Americans. And Trump and the Republicans are absolutely responsible for this. Hi, I um, live in Washington, D.C. I, I don't want to leave my name. I think 
one thing you guys should know is, um, you know, you've talked a lot about how there hasn't been a lot of direct action and protests and things. And, uh, you know, as federal employees, we're scared. We've spent two years being politically targeted, even as civil servants. And so for us to to come out and protest is a scary thing because we're worried about losing our jobs, um, you know, to the extent we ever get paid again. Um, but the the shutdown, I, you know, my family and I are lucky. We have savings and, um, you know, a, a backstop in the form of my mother <laughs> has money that she can lend us if we really need it. But, you know, it's been really hard. I, I've worked my whole life. I, you know, went to law school for a reason and it wasn't to stay home as much as I, I love my family and I love my daughter. I feel like I'm living in, um, you know, the feminine mystique. Like I, I don't have anything to do. I, you know, I've been trying to volunteer. I, I'm trying to structure my day, but it's it's hard and it's, you know, hard to not be doing the job that I love. And I, you know, could be making a lot more money in private practice. And I chose public service because I believe in it and it's important and I believe in the work I do and I miss it and I want to do my job. And, you know, like I said, my family and I, compared to so many other people, are so fortunate, and um, we're not ungrateful for that. But, you know, when I get together occasionally with my friends from work and we see each other, we just cry because it's hard to feel like you don't have a purpose, and it's hard to feel like no one cares, and it's hard to just feel forgotten. Um, and I think that's how a lot of us feel. And, um, yeah. So anyway, thank you for everything that you do. Bye. Thanks again to everyone who called in and shared your stories. Uh, we will keep sharing them, uh, over the next couple of days. Um, and we will talk to you next week. Yeah. Call your senators. Bye everyone. Bye. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. 